in the Thanks, Bert. Hey, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with here, with with you all here again. Uh, thank you so much for all your support. I want to start thanking you guys for your support, for your donations and prayers for me and my family. Uh, this season, when we attend the Pastors College, all the time you guys gather or remember in your prayers uh, about our church in Brazil. Thank you so much. What a gift is to partner with you guys in the gospel. What a gift is to partner with Sovereign Grace Church in the gospel. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all your prayers, for all your love towards us, for releasing Bert to go to Brazil, Bert and Karen to go to Brazil to serve us. Uh, it's a joy. Uh, I say once again, it's a joy being in partnership with you. Thank you so much. Today I was given the task of preaching the gospel. Last time I was here, if you remember, I also had the privilege of sharing the gospel with you. That time I preached in Portuguese, my mother language. Me, I and my family, we are from Brazil, so we speak Portuguese. But today I will be preaching in English, or at least trying to. <laughs> so I would like to ask you to bear with me a little for the next 40 minutes or so. During the preaching of God's word. Preaching God's word is serious business. And I don't want you to be distracted by my accent. I don't want you to be uh, distracted by the way I speak. And uh, hinder God's word to act on you powerfully. So this morning I would like to talk with you about eight areas in our Christian life in which growth is not uh, an option. In which growth is not optional. Not according to me, but according to Peter the Apostle. In his second Pete, uh, epistle, Peter, Peter warns that obedient Christians are not killjoys or repressed, and that a Christianity that wants to have the best of both worlds will actually have the best of neither. Because the present world is being, as Peter says in 3.7, kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And the future world will be a home only for those in which righteousness dwells. This morning, as every morning, we face a choice. And to choose a home in one world will mean not having a home in the other. We need to choose where we want to spend all eternity. The Apostle Peter, he wrote his second epistle when he was probably, probably in Rome. As his death was near, as we learn from verse 14, 
he would probably no longer be able to be in person with the churches in those regions to whom he wrote. For this reason, he wrote his epistle so that even after his death, they would remember what he had taught, which came from Christ and not from cleverly devised myth, as verse 16 tells us. And so they could personally know and experience the power of Christ and his coming. This way, they would not deviate from the genuine faith granted by God and thus perish along with the false teachers who were troubling the church at that time. So these events, Peter's death drawing near and the twisted teaching of the false teachers, they both set the stage for Peter, Peter's encouragement to perseverance in his second epistle. An encouragement we are going to read in just a moment. So turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. It's New Year's Eve. And with New Year's Eve comes New Year's resolutions. And a desire to change things for the year to come. As we look back to this year, we look forward to the next year, to the year to come, and we meditate and we want to change some things that didn't work for this year. And uh, everyone here has at least once experienced the desire to change something. Only to see how powerless we are to change ourselves and the people, our situations around us. And this, this raises the question, is the power of Jesus Christ enough on its own to strengthen the resolve of an anxious and tempted Christian in a challenging and attractively pagan world as ours? Yes, that's the answer Peter gave us, a sound yes. Peter answers that Jesus' power is more than adequate. For Jesus not only set his, the highest standards for Christians to live up, but he also gives the resources to meet those standards. And in the end, he himself will defeat the forces who oppose to him and his church. So, this morning, I would like to encourage you, instead of relying upon your own power and intelligence and abilities to overcome sin, temptation, and the world. To follow the advice of the Apostle Peter, who teaches us that the appropriate response to the cleansing of our sins and the receiving of our new nature in Christ is to pursue diligently that virtues that will develop our salvation. Granting us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And making us able to glorify God in our life. So, this morning I want to point out two main points or two truths that arise directly from Peter's argument. In 2 Peter, verses one, uh, 2 Peter, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. Two truths that shows us why and how we are to grow in the virtues Peter mentions, becoming so increasingly free from, from the world's influence on us, 
developing our salvation and glorifying God. Please, read with me 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-11. Thus says the word of the Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the road because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with a brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are in- increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his sin, former sins. Therefore, brothers, be out the way more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? May God bless the preaching of His Word. The first truth we can learn from this passage this morning is that Christ has granted Christ has granted us everything we need to develop our salvation. Peter begins his letter by praying that grace and peace be multiplied in the lives of his readers. In the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 2. This, this is very important because Peter's primary concern in his letter is that Christians, the disciples, increase in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. What Peter wants communicate when he mentions the word knowledge here, is not a mere intellectual, speculative, distance, or cold knowledge. For instance, you can know everything about a car, its engine, how it works. You, you can know everything about it, but you can know everything, and at the same time, doesn't know how to drive it. So, Peter is not speaking about this intellectual knowledge here. He is speaking about a practical, experiential, more significant and more efficient way of understanding God and Christ. He is speaking about how to drive the car, not how to know how it works. The knowledge of God is one of the main emphasis of his epistle. That's why he begins with it in in the second verse. So proper understanding of God and Christ, Peter says, produces grace and peace in life. But Peter tells us that it wasn't just grace and peace, as great as they are. 
that Christ achieved for us. But all the things that led, lead to eternal life. Jesus teaches us that eternal life is knowing God and himself. The one who God sent to save us from our sins. As we just have sinned. Eternal life is to know God eternally. It is to be forever united with Christ. Which begins here. When we heard the gospel. When we hear the gospel. When we are saved by his power from our sins. When we are brought from darkness into his light and his kingdom. Eternal life is to know God eternally and his son who saved us from our sins. It's to be united with Christ forever and forever. And this knowledge, this union begins here in this earthly life. Peter says, we also have been given all the things that lead to godliness. Godless, godless, godliness, I'm sorry, is a life devoted to and lived in the presence of God. Godliness has to do with a right relationship with God. Peter clarifies that the resources for a godly life do not come from human effort or mystical knowledge, but by His divine power, by God Himself. That means that all the provision for a godly and holy life comes from God Himself and is available to all Christians with no exception. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, imagine that, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available now to the church, for me and for you. We don't need to live a weak and powerless spiritual life. How things are given to us, flowing through the power of the omnipotent one, God himself. Through Christ, through Christ's glory and virtue, God grant us all his precious promises, which originate in the gospel and deliver us from the sinful pressures, both from within, because our flesh and our greed, our sinful nature that remains, and also from the world's oppression. The Christian faith is not a path of sacrifice, Without reward, but a road full of blessings and abundant and glorious promises. The Christian life is not just a painful and frustrating journey against the world, even though it can be hard sometimes, but a, it's a joyful journey to heaven. We have precious and great promises, and the one who made them faithfully fulfills. All of them in our lives. Peter says, God enables us to live holy lives. Not because we are good. Not because we are better than others. Not because you, not me, are Americans. Not because of that. But because of His glory. His own glory. His virtue. His own virtue. And through that same glory and virtue that raised Christ from the death, God grant us access as his children 
throughout the treasures in his powerful promises. The apostle Peter means that we cannot come to faith unless God works in us. We all know that. But he also means that we cannot participate in the life of God and be holy and have godliness in our own lives without the grace and the life of God working on us. As Paul says, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his due, according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 13. Salvation is a work that begins and ends with God. Peter is teaching that we are not to feel massively daunted by the higher, high standards of life and godliness the entire New Testament speaks about. Or the entire Bible. Peter is saying that we are not supposed to read those stories, to look to those men, to Peter's life, Paul's life, and oh, that was for them. No, all that power is available to us today. Peter wasn't special because he was an apostle. No, there is no kind of second class Christians. We are called to live a, a holy and godly life. Godly life. So we don't need to feel massively daunted by the high standards of the scripture. Because the Bible's answer to our feelings of shortcomings. Oh, and we all have them. None of, uh, of us is perfect. We all have feelings of shortcomings. And the Bible's answer to these kind of feelings is that Jesus Christ has given us everything we need to, for life and godliness. Jesus Christ has generously provided all that could ever be required to be godly. By being Christians, you and I are in touch with everything we need to live a godly life. Did you know that? We can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We can experience God, His loves, His affections. It's changing in our lives because of what Christ did on the cross. That's a primarily important word. Christ gave us everything. Not just something. Not just almost everything. No, it's everything. And this is both a tremendous encouragement and a tremendous warning for us today. It's an encouragement because it means... There is nothing extra. We, can, we can't add anything at all to Christ's work. We can't add anything at all to find out or gain access to Christ's presence. No. We already have obtained how that we need through Christ Jesus. The gospel is sufficient for us to meet God's requirements. As Christians, we have access to everything we need to live a life that pleases God. And the sufficiency of Christ is good news. You and I don't have to do anything at all to get saved. It's all God's work. But it's a tremendous warning that God gave us everything in Christ. Because this means we have to face up to 
our accountability to him. We cannot blame God for not making us godly enough, or not making his will clear enough, or for for our own failures and shortcomings, for our own mistakes. Because we already have everything we need from God. And there is no other way. Brothers and sisters, there is no other way we need to to walk the path of the discipleship. If there were other way, it would mean that the death of Christ may be sufficient to save some, but insufficient to sanctify. And that's not uh, what all the scripture says. We all know that's not true. Based on the glorious truths of the gospel... Peter will lay out how to live a godly life. He is like a father feeding his children. Give them the recipe for living a godly life. And this will be, we can't be mistaken here, this will be a matter of total submission to God's word. The Christian who is not godly has only one person to blame. And it's not God. So how this good news that Christ has achieved all, everything we need to live a holy and godly life. How this good news leads us to glorify God then through diligently pursuing the virtues that will develop our salvation. Grant us entrance into the kingdom of heaven and glorify God. In our broken and fallen world. That's what Peter teaches us from verses 5 to 11. And this brings me to my second main point here this morning. Oh, the second truth we can learn from this morning, from this text this morning. And this truth is we are created to grow in Christ's likeness. And it's only possible. Through the power of the Holy Spirit living on us. And because of what Christ has achieved for us in the cross. In verses 3 and 4, Peter is trying to assure his original readers and us today that God brings us To believe. It's all God's work. We have faith because of God. He has granted us all his promise to lead us to life and godliness. The problem is that it could maybe cause us to relax in our devotion and growth. Wait a minute. You saying that God already gave us faith and all we need to Live a godly and holy life. So, I just need to lay out on the couch and watch TV? That's great. <laughs> no, that, that's not what Peter is saying. And uh, this is a problem. Because some can think like this. Because after all, it's all God, God's work, isn't it? So, it, he does everything according to his good will and faithfulness to complete the good work he has begun in our lives. So, Maybe we can tend to relax in our faith and not live according to God's pattern. 
in our waiting for Christ's coming. We can settle. And we can settle in a false security. False security that the state we are in right now is what God wants for our lives. False security that we don't need to worry about growing in faith, in holiness, and daily personal communion with God. That's why Peter, after telling us about God's promises in the gospel, encourages us to make every effort to add to our faith a list of qualities we must constantly grow. Because one of Peter's primary concerns with his original readers, and us today as well, is that our faith must make a radical difference in the way we behave, in the way we live here, now. We will want to please Jesus Christ more and more and more, rather than presume upon His love. So Peter wants to show us that our faith, if genuine, if true, step up a chain of profound, internal, and experiential changes to meet our hunger for God's reality. Peter thinks that the Christian life requires commitment, dedication, and effort. This is spiritual growth However, it's not automatic. It's not like a car, a car and uh, you put the stick and put in D and just uh, press the gas and woo, go. No, it's not. And the engine does all you need to. No, it's, it, it has to be, some things have to be done if you want to grow in these virtues uh, Peter is talking to us. It requires diligence and spiritual discipline. Because a careless believer is a contradiction in terms. For God's grace requires, but not only requires, but also enables the believer to be diligent. So what are the divine instruments to lead us to this spiritual growth that Peter is talking about? Peter selected a list of virtues to be found in a health Christian life. He's trying to say that because of all things God gives us in Christ Jesus, through the gospel, we should make every effort to add some Christian virtues to our faith. And he begins his list with faith itself. That's simply because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is the initial acceptance of God's love, is the response to his gracious willingness to receive us. And the foundation stone on which the following virtues are built. Faith is repre- represented here as a woman with seven daughters. That is, other virtues and the culmination of them, as we shall see, is love. The first quality Peter mentions flowing from true faith is virtue, which means excellence or moral uprightness. The word used by the apostle here to describe excellence or moral uprightness is the same word used in verse 3 
to describe Jesus. Yes, that's right. He is saying that we must look like Christ. We must live like Christ. We need to be excellent like Christ. But remember, He gave us everything we need for that. Peter tells us that because we are partakers of the divine nature, which, which means we are born again. We have this divine nature living inside us. We were adopted into God's family. This is one of the precious gifts of the gospel. Being adopted in God's family. And because of this gift of adoption, we are no longer children of disobedience and wrath. Destined to eternal damnation. So now, as children of God, we must live according to our new nature in Christ and demonstrate more and more in more excellence and moral uprightness or virtue in Peter's words. In the likeness of Christ, in such a depraved and corrupt world as the one we live in. Peter continues his list and says we must add knowledge to faith and virtue. You see, Peter is uh, about a ladder, and uh, each step of the ladder is a virtue, and Peter is building up one virtue after another. And uh, so he speaks about virtue, uh, faith, and virtue. And now he speaks about knowledge. Peter is talking here about practical, practical wisdom, not merely intellectual understanding. The kind of Understanding about the engine of the car and not about driving the car. The knowledge Peter has in mind here is this practical knowledge about how to drive a car. Uh, he has in mind here that wisdom which distinguishes good from evil and show, shows the way to flee from the evil one. It is the kind of knowledge talked about in the, in the Proverbs. A practical wisdom, a practical way to avoid sin, destruction, and to ha have a right relationship with God. It's knowledge about Jesus Christ and what pleases Him. And this kind of knowledge comes from reading the Bible, praying the Bible, thinking about the Bible, discussing the Bible, God's Word. If you want to grow in our godliness, we shall have a hunger and a desire to grow in our knowledge of God. And uh, we have all we need for a godly life right here. He gave us His word for that. And this knowledge is obtained through the practical exercise of the virtue of which the apostle has just spoken. Knowledge that leads to a more profound knowledge of Christ. To these things, faith, and to these things we need to add self-control, which must be exercised in all aspects of life. Not just during meals in front of a table filled of food. Uh, unfortunately, many Christians think that uh, self-control works just in a, food plan, uh, in a table plan of food. Uh, 
oh, that's very good. Uh, we are now in Christmas Eve, so uh, uh, New Year's Eve, so it's very good to have self-control in front of, of a table full of uh, food. But it's not about this that Peter is talking about here. Christian self-control is a submission to the control of Christ. Who dwells in you. It is total and unreserved submission. Because only in this way it's possible to have self-control. Otherwise, if we don't submit ourselves to Christ in an unreserved way. Otherwise, sin will always find a way to master our sinful nature once again. And just as true faith leads to virtue, and this excellence and moral operations leads to knowledge, which consists of practical wisdom, and this true knowledge leads to self-control, we don't have to stop here. Because however, what good would it be if all these things were present in our lives if we didn't persevere in the faith? So that's why Peter says that from the virtue of self-control must spring steadfastness. Steadfastness is this mental disposition that enables us to not be shaken by the difficulty and affliction of the world. And to withstand when the world's opposed to us. And uh, to withstand against the seduction of the flesh from our inner self. The mature Christian does not give up. You are not called to live a while, months, years, decades, and then give up. The mature Christian does not give up. His Christianity is like the steady, constant glow of a star. And not the quick passing flash of a meteor. There are few more reliable stats of faith than this. The true faith perseveres. A Christian will therefore strive. Even though it may be distressing to stand out in a society opposed to God uh, as ours. A Christian trusts that the Lord knows how to rescue men from trials. As Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9 of his second epistle. Peter continues his list of qualities and says that to steadfastness must be added godliness. He already has spoken about godliness in verse 3. Godliness is a very practical awareness of God in all aspects of life. It is, the true, it is the virtue that describes our right relationship with God. It is the quality of character that makes a person distinct. A godly person lives above the petty things of life. The passions and the pressures that control the existence of man. In a world that places so much value on power, success, wealth, and health, in detriment of spiritual values, we must understand that our greatest need is for a godly life. The Apostle Paul goes 
so far as to say that godliness is of value in every way. Brothers and sisters, we are not called to be rich. Many of us are not called to be rich. Many of, uh, of us are not called to be health. But all of us are called to live a godly life and experience God. And experience the power that enables us to enter in the kingdom of God. But godliness, however, should not exist without brotherly affection. That's why Peter adds another step. And uh, after talking about godliness, he speaks about brotherly affection. The word brotherhood means loving your neighbor as you would love a sibling. Well, we love our siblings not only because of their virtues, if they have any, but despite of their weaknesses and the fact that they like bother us a lot, isn't it? Not only because of their merits, but despite their many flaws. They are blood of our own blood. So we love them. And this is how we should love one another in God's church. Brotherly affection for our brothers and sisters is a hallmark of true discipleship. The Apostle John says to us that if anyone says, I love God and hate his brother, he's a liar. To love your neighbor means bearing one another's burns and thus fulfilling the law of Christ. It's impossible to love God and not love your brother and sister in Christ. Love your neighbor means bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And it means guarding the spirit-giving unit from destruction by gossip, prejudice, lack of compassion, and refusal to accept a Christian brother or sister for who he is, he or she is in Christ. The very importance of the diligent pursuit of this brotherly affection and the very difficult that is to achieve it is why it's comfortably emphasized in the pages of the New Testament. We must love one another. Because the crown of Christian progress towards maturity is love. Brotherly affection must be associated with love. This is talking to us here about sacrificial, unconditional love. The kind of love. Once again, Peter's point to Christ and his cross. And he's talking about love in the way Christ loved us. The kind of love shown by Jesus on the cross. Just as Christ loved us and offered himself on our behalf, we must love one another and give our lives for the good of one another. This love is the irreparable proof that we are Christ's disciples. Love is the climax of Peter's list because it's the highest Christian trait. So, brothers and sisters, after talking about the steps of spiritual growth, Peter shows the practical implications of his growth. He mentions a fruitful life. Verse 8. 
But if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. A lifeless Christian is unfruitful and inactive. He bears no fruit and has no good works. He is ineffective. He also runs the risk of being cut off from the true vine. Because you all know the metaphor of the vine. And in that, mind, in that metaphor, uh, this is precisely what Jesus says that the Father does. With all those who do not bear fruit, He prunes them. Not to bear more fruit, but to throw them into the fire. Anyone who doesn't grow in their spiritual life does nothing useful for the kingdom of God. There is no excuse to accommodate with our current achievements. Lack of spiritual growth is always a sign of spiritual death. The knowledge of Christ Peter talked about here implies an active and fruitful life. Peter is, Peter is showing once again that this knowledge is not just intellectual. As Jonathan Edwards once said, Jonathan Edwards once said that we need light in our heads and heat in our hearts. And that's why Peter is talking about here. This kind of knowledge that not just brings light to the head, but set the heart on fire. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the knowledge of Jesus Christ in verse 8 is a significant phrase. It is directed against the false teachers who boasted of their already complete knowledge. Peter reminds us that the knowledge of Christ, the full knowledge of Christ belongs to the future. When we will see Him face to face. And this should make us humble and also uh, encourage us in our little knowledge. Oh, all of us are of little knowledge. There is always room for growth. But a man who doesn't manifest a growing in these qualities is blind, Peter says. He lacks understanding, knowledge of Christ. A lifeless Christian has no spiritual discernment. His vision is blurred and clouded to the point where he can't see anything at all. And he becomes blind. But the interesting thing is here is, why does Peter add nearsighted? Because for a man, if he is blind, how can he be, how can he be near, nearsighted? Because when you are blind, you can't see anything at all. Peter means that this person is not physically blind. But he is blind, he or she is blind to the heavenly things. And totally occupied with earthly things. He or she cannot see what is far away, but only what is close, near. Such a person can see only the worldly things. The things that he, can, he or she can touch and manipulate. Which, things which are close to them, but cannot see the heavenly things. Which are far away. They are spiritually blind, Peter says. Uh, it turns out that Peter was probably also thinking on a, of another meaning here. 
Namely, to blink one's eye or to close one's eyes. The apostle means that such a person is blind because they blink or deliberately close their eyes in front of the light. When the light of the gospel comes, that people start blinking because of the light. And uh, when the light comes and comes close, closer and closer, he, he or she closed their eyes because of the light. And they became blind to the truth of the gospel. Spiritual blindness descends on the eyes that intentionally turns away from the light and from the virtues of character. The quality Peter is mentioned here. The credits to which a person is called when he comes to faith in Christ. If we see the light and if we start blinking and closing your and close your eyes, we run the risk of being spiritual dead. This is very serious. And this should warn us against spiritual relaxation and encourage us to pursue and grow in the qualities Peter mentions in this passage. But why we see so much people have been converted and shown faith in Jesus, turning away from the goal Christ has called them? Peter's answer is straightforward. Such people have forgotten they were cleansed from their former sins. Verse 9. This, mean, this means they no longer believe in the gospel. They started blinking, 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 and closed their eyes to the light of the gospel. And didn't grow in the virtues, people, uh, Peter is saying here. They have deliberately forgotten that they have been forgiven of their sins. They no longer believe in the promises, the great promises of the gospel. The promises Peter makes clear that Christ once and for all, reached for us. Unfortunately, this is a situation more common than we think. How many people do we know who profess to have faith in Christ, but appear to have a character and life utterly opposite to those we have just mentioned? Such a people do not progress in the knowledge of the gospel, the holiness of life, communion, devotion to God, Bible reading, prayer. They claim to have faith. But do they really have the faith they claim to have? Peter is warning us. Don't be like them. Set your faith in movement. And that this movement may produce these virtues Peter is mentioning about. This kind of people, they are self-deluding. They think they have sight. When in fact, they are blind. It is not the case that perhaps some, some of us here find ourselves in precisely this way. If we examine ourselves and look to our life, we try and try, but we don't see these virtues. We don't see faith. We see the light and we start blinking, blinking, and close our eyes because we can't stand the light. This reminds me of the church of Laodicea in Revelation. Remember, Christ says to them, they thought that they had everything. They were rich, they had everything. But God says 
to them, you don't have anything. You are blind. That's a precious warning. Especially in this season of year, when we look back and look forward and meditate in the things that didn't go well, not, we are not supposed to delude ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. And uh, if we don't find these virtues in us, we can repent. There is always room on the cross for those who repent. And uh, we can cry out to Christ with great forgiveness and uh, call for Him for help in our lives. But Peter says we must through. We must strive to confirm our calling and election. Brothers, we cannot and must not deceive ourselves. We must examine our own lives to to see if the fruit of the Spirit is at work in us and if you are constantly growing the gospel to the full knowledge of Christ. To the full knowledge of the one who called us out of darkness into light. The proof that a person is saved is not their profession of faith, but their progress in faith. Vocation and election goes together. No one can maintain that they are God's elect and have been called by God if they live contrary to the Lord's will. Only a holy life is evidence of divine vocation and election. If we confirm our vocation with a life under these virtues, Peter concludes, results will flow. First of all, you will never fall. You will be kept by the power of God till the end. Of course, we will all stumble in many ways. But Peter's point is that the Christian will be spared of disastrous defeat. He will no go astray in the end. He will be preserved. He will persevere because of the power of God working on him. Oh, what a, what a marvelous promise is this. It's not by our own, our, our own power. It's through God's power working in us. And Peter says, we also will be richly provided with an entrance into the eternal kingdom, kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only those who remain faithful till the end will enter the kingdom of God. Those who, who only appear to be saved, like the foolish virgins uh, in Jesus' parable, have, having no oil in their lamps, will be left out on that glorious day. There is nothing, nothing more disastrous than false assurance. And we are, we are very prone to, lay, uh, to lean on false assurance. Always. Our achievements, our knowledge, our position, our years in uh, the church. But Peter is remembering, remembering us. We are not to be like this. Because only those who remain faithful till the, till the end will enter the kingdom of God. 
There is nothing more disastrous than false assurance. Remember when Jesus finished his Sermon on the Mount by saying that many, many, he says, on the final day will cry out, Lord, Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is an orthodox and sincere profession of faith. They're crying, Lord, Lord. And they will justify their profession of faith by declaring their outstanding achievements. Did we not prophesy, prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many might works in your name? Oh, brothers and sisters, they did spectacular work. Oh, they did extraordinary things. They impressed people with the greatness of their achievements. Jesus will not deny these things. But we'll we'll say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people had only a nominal relationship with Christ. They went to the church every Sunday. They did miracles in God's name. But they didn't know Christ. They had no intimacy with Him. They had only an intellectual knowledge of the truth. They had not been transformed by it. They did holy things, but at the same time lived in and practiced iniquity. Those who will enter the eternal kingdom of God, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, are not those who only make a profession with their lips, but those who live in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's why Peter says about these virtues. He's not making them up. He's worried about me and you and his first readers that we enter the kingdom of heaven. We must always remember that entering the kingdom of heaven is only possible through Jesus Christ. We need to add this virtue to our life to have this assurance, not a false assurance, not, a, uh, not to deceive our, ourselves, but to have this uh, great assurance in Christ. We can only obey Christ and develop the kind of life He demands of us because He became Incarnate. He died and rose again. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on the form of a man, took on flesh, lived in perfect obedience, and died on the cross for me and for you. He suffered the punished for our sins, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, victorious over death, and proving that as God he is. He can forgive sins and give eternal life to all who repent of their sins and believe in Him. So as you look to yourself and you can't find these virtues, he, has, he is powerful to forgive you and give you eternal life if you repent of your sins and believe in Him and let the Spirit work in you. This is why, brothers and sisters, every Encouragement to holiness, to live a holy life in the scripture is saturated with the gospel. 
Because the gospel is the power of God for our salvation. Our call to obedience is directly linked to the perfect obedience of the God-man who gave his life. So that our obedience, our disobedience, our sins might be forgiven. And we might receive new life, new nature, become partakers of God's own nature. You realize how marvelous this is? We are partakers of God's own nature. We have God's own spirit living in us. So, it's unacceptable to speak of our obedience, of our life, of our holiness, without considering Christ's obedience, Christ's life, and Christ's holiness. We live differently precisely because Christ's work on the cross has transformed us to live different in a world like ours, fallen and broken because of sin. So, may our resolve for the year to come be different than our common New Year's resolutions. That two weeks from now, we won't remember them at all. May we add to our faith these consistent changes in our character in order to be effective, productive, clear-sighted, not near-sighted, clear-sighted Christians, because the appropriate response to the cleansing of our sins and the receiving of our new nature in Christ is to diligently pursue the virtues that will develop our salvation. Experiencing by the power of the Holy Spirit the kind of growth that confirms, that gives us assurance that our faith and calling is certain. And thus, brothers and sisters, Peter says, we will will be granted entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, no one of us here can enter the kingdom of heaven without your power working on us. None of us here can stand in the day of judgment and point to who we are, what we have did. No, we can't do that. We will bow to our knees and in recognition that you are Lord over all. That you kept us safe. That you gave us the virtues that we needed in order to get openly entrance in the kingdom of heaven. So working on us, O oh Lord, that we can live differently in this year to come. That we can look to ourselves and See these virtues growing and growing, and so have bold, boldness in our faith to run the race to the end. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.